welcome to Digital Health Unplugged, coming to you from various kitchens, bedrooms and home offices across the UK. As always, we are powering through working from home to bring you the latest healthcare IT news and discussions. This week, we are going to be talking about delivering digital mental health care, and we're going to try our best not to make it all about coronavirus, but unfortunately, we can't avoid it altogether. I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health, and our guests today hardly need any introduction. We have Dr. James Reed, psychiatrist and CCIO at Birmingham and Solihull Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust, and also the chair of Digital Health CCIO Network. Hi, coming from the broom cupboard in Birmingham. <laughs> and we have Professor Joe McDonald, psychiatrist and medical director at Sleep Station and CCIO at Cumbria, Northumberland, Tyne and Weir NHS Foundation Trust, and also former chair of our CCIO Network. Hello, uh, I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> it's good to know I'm not the only one in the makeshift office. Um, thank you both for joining us today. As I said, we're going to be talking about delivering digital mental health care, specifically what needs to be in place to go digital and the benefits and constraints of those services. We are also going to have to take a look at how the coronavirus outbreak has impacted mental health delivery and care, as like many other services, it's been forced to go digital. And also what the lasting impact is going to be, because even when transmission stops, we're going to be looking at the after effects of coronavirus for a very long time. So Joe and James, let's start by looking at what digital mental health care is and what needs to be in place to make it successful. It's, it's been a fascinating time for me because uh, I've started a new job uh, at a, an online CBT for insomnia service called Sleep Station, who've been paperless and digital for nearly 10 years. And I'm also half-time still working for NHS Trust, my employer CNTW. Um, and it's been it's been absolutely fascinating to watch CNTW begin to transform into a can-do digital outfit, while at the same time I'm I'm working at an outfit that's been that way for years, and it's it's just been amazing to see uh, a that somebody could have done this ten years ago, um, uh, and b how quickly the NHS can do it. It's been absolutely stunning, the rate of adoption of new technology. I don't know about you, James. Yeah, it's exactly the same. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, these things you feel like you've been um, been the, the lone voice for years and years. So trying to say to them, look, you know, stuff really is a quite a good idea, you know, I mean, particularly about video is the classic example. I mean, we had a, a video consultation project, which we just about managed to get maybe three or four clinicians on who have kind of vaguely interested just about, and we struggled and struggled. And literally within, you know, a week of this happening, I had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people demanding to know what the answer was and why why it wasn't all ready and why we hadn't got it all done. And so we were able to stand it up and get it, you know, and we went from literally zero to 900 consultations a week in, you know, two weeks or something, which is quite incredible. And it just demonstrates that when people want to do something, They'll mm. do it, you know, and it's it's maybe it's all the argument we've always said, isn't it, about not about technology, it's about hearts and minds and getting people to want to do stuff. And when they want to do it, they 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 can crack on and do great stuff. Well, we've had an identical experience with similar explosion of numbers. We've had the technology for a while, yeah. Uh, to be honest, uh, and um, uh, you, you know, so online consultation took off pretty much as soon as we started to offer it. Um, uh, or post-COVID, it took mm -hmm. off. We've been offering it for over a year. Yeah. Um, and like you say, you know, a handful of aficionados take it on, and then suddenly you've got, you know, 
thousands. The other thing that we also had available was we'd done a deal um, on Office 365, so we were Microsoft Teams ready yeah. before the national deal came along. A little bit sore about that. Um, <laughs> hoping yeah. I'm going to get some money back from Feel somebody. Your pain there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the Teams takeoff was amazing. Yeah. You know, it's a shame this is not a video call. I could show you the graph, but it, you know, it, it, we've gone from virtually nothing to thousands of meetings. Um, some of them are internal clinical meetings, but some of them are. Um, it's been widely used actually with patients as well. Yeah. Uh, not least for virtual visits on on wards, uh, so it's been a it's been a an astonishing uh, speed of adoption. Yeah, and I think the same we have the same thing with the uh, the use of Teams again, um, and um, again you know again people who you know would have told you how this was never going to work, you know, and it's amazing how quickly it becomes normalised as well. Like you know, no one talks about it anymore. For the first couple of weeks, there was lots of it, and now it's just a normal thing. You don't even think twice about it, and it's mm. you know, it's the, it, which would have taken us. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but everyone said this would have taken us years to accomplish, and this window of opportunity has allowed us to move, you know, years into the future in a very short space of time. Yeah. So what I'm getting from what you've both just said is that all of these. Um, resources were available to you and you know the ability mm-hmm. to have digital services were there it's just a case of they weren't being taken up do you think there's any particular reason for that was it just not something that was focused on or is it just a case of we didn't know how necessary it was until right now I, think, I do think that it, it's a general thing that people stick with ways of working that they're comfortable with you know unless they have a reason to change so I mean outpatient clinics are a good example of this we've been I've been trying in in, in a, to get some movement on the way outpatient clinics are and I think it's true across all sectors as well you know the model of an outpatient clinic is very much the same now as it was you know 150 years ago you know the patient queues up to see the doctor and from the doctor's point of view I suppose there's not that worked all right because they sat there the patients came to them so the incentive perhaps from the clinician's point of view wasn't quite as great as to really push ahead and make something happen um but then but now when it has and you can demonstrate it all the kind of the naysaying goes away so i think a lot of the time it's just being comfortable and and maybe needing a, a, a real shake-up to actually let you look with the new eyes at the work you're doing and see how it can be done better I, I think the other thing james the other key factor for me is that um the patients have done their training so well and mm. so fast in yeah. terms of how you do a video call because they're they're video calling each other all the time yeah uh, and consequently they've just they've picked up the technology and the rate of improvement of the technology to be honest the rate yeah, yeah. the speed at which you know suddenly you get fancy backgrounds in teams and yeah. they can do nine when last week they could only do four yeah. um you know the the rate of improvement because of the the amount of use the technology is getting it's actually progressing at a, at a rate of knots along with as i say the 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 patients have got really good at it, yeah. um, uh, and I suspect they're going to expect some of this in the future, mm. um, um, rather than trailing up to the clinic and sitting in the phlegmy waiting room, yeah. you know. And that's what the other thing to catch something that's interested me as well is the um, is the paradigm. You know, like we've seen like some of the, some of the solutions out there are based on digital waiting room and it's always seems to be strange that why you think a digital waiting room is really that much better than a real one because sitting about waiting however you're doing it isn't ideal so there's a sort of a conceptual change as well i think the other thing which of course has helped has been that the tech is actually available broadly you know 10 years ago even 
you know, you wouldn't have been confident that the patient had, you know, a smartphone or any kind of phone with a camera. But now, you know, you can say, well, pretty much any phone made in the last five years will probably be good enough, you know, and some of the stuff that you know, the, the stuff in the hands of the patients is better than the stuff we've got in the hospital. That leads me very nicely onto another question that I wanted to ask um, is the fact that a lot of people think that mental health care needs to be something that takes place in person, uh, probably because it's extremely sensitive. Um, but obviously, video consultations and other digital services allow us to do it remotely. Are there benefits to offering digital solutions as opposed to traditional face-to-face one that we haven't yet explored enough? Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. We've been, I think, again, maybe in mental health, we're particularly guilty of this. We've, we've said, you know, we've always said, you know, said that it must be all done face-to-face. But I think what our clinicians are finding is that they're sort of empowered now to pick you know, and, and it's not about picking anything. It's not even saying that video is the default. What I've been encouraging you to do is say, look, you've got a whole choice here. You've got telephones, text messages, emails, video calls, and you know, you've got all of these. Think about your patient and which is best. And like one of our psychologists, for example, said that she had a text message consultation which was the best one that she'd ever had with this particular patient because sitting in the room with them was kind of a bit too much a bit too scary and they couldn't really cope with it but with a bit of time to think about and a short articulated answer they got a much better engagement and I just think we we, what we're looking for now is to match the technology of whatever it may be to the needs of the individual patient and we'll probably get a better result doing that. That's fascinating, James. I mean, I I think there are some advantages which haven't yet played out in terms of the numbers. But as an adolescent psychiatrist, 25% of my first timers don't come. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that's because they're worried about bumping into a school colleague yeah. uh, in, in the Flemmy waiting room. Yeah. Uh, and nobody wants to be bumping into colleagues uh, from school, um, you know, in a psychiatric facility so i suspect that some of our attendance rates might actually improve with this Mm. Uh, and the other thing is that i I sometimes think it's easier to say something you know in a text message or in a synchronous chat than it is than it is face to face sometimes with another human being so it means we can offer a whole lot more choice uh to patients and the the work that um again I'm, i'm the new boy at sleep station but um, some of the stuff that they've already done. So the patient checks themselves in, they onboard themselves, they do most of the uh, pre-assessment, you know, assessment scales, etc. So, I, you know, we have all that before yeah. we start. So a lot of the time, as, again, as an adolescent psychiatrist, if I'm seeing somebody with ADHD, I spend most of the first session explaining about the forms that need to be filled in. Yeah. That could all be done as we do at Sleep Station, online with a helpful video um, and and some of the communication that we do around asynchronous chat for the CBT for insomnia piece means it's literally at the patient's convenience, uh, you know, and they can pick it up uh, and drop it whenever they want. And I think we've got a, we've got a lot to learn and I'm trying to transfer lessons from, from that, um, you know, uh, sleep station world digital first for 10 years into my work at CNTW because there's clearly a you know a lot of time and energy and money to be saved yeah and I think you know historically and looking back I think we've we've tended to made the mistake of assuming that what's you know what we think is best is what's best for the patient which is a terrible paternalistic mistake we've health services have been making for many years you know but we said because I think I need to see you therefore that must be the best thing for you <laughs> yeah. um, when it, it clearly it isn't um and as you say when the same thing with our you know with people who don't attend and and as I say in just terms of 
what people want because I'm thinking about it you know I think sitting in a room with a clinician is quite an intense it's you know and especially if you're especially if you know you're profoundly depressed it's a hard place to be in mm. you know, it's difficult mm. to give of your best but much easier if you've got some kind of proxy or a thing that allows you to take a few minutes away or you know it, it, I think it'll work much better and I'm really hoping that my colleagues will Will, will feel able to really explore that, you know, and use this as yeah. say, well, it's what what what's best and what works best for what person, which is a, a, a much better position and, and in line with the agenda of patient choice and everything that we've been talking about for years. I think it was the uh, CIO or the CCIO for Wales who, he, I remember the joke uh, he told uh, from the podium once, yes. why, why does the patient go to the outpatient department? And it's to remind the consultant to look in the notes. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, there's a real element of truth in that. Yeah. And, I, I, and I'm just, uh, you know, I'm wondering how much things could change when we've opened up a more digital um, and offered more choice to the patient about how they get dealt with. And the other aspect as well is, is again, is what the nature of the encounter is. Depending, so I mean, a lot of I'm, I've, I see a, a, a group of very stable, sort of quite long term patients, and for them, actually, I've realised that you know a lot of the time we can do it. A quick phone call is actually all that's required to keep, mm. you know, that, and that saves them a load of time for having to come all the way, and it saves it saves everyone time. And you can do that sort of thing much more frequently. So you can adopt a kind of high frequency, low intensity model, whereas you know five yeah. minutes once a week or fortnight is more than enough. And saves everyone loads of time and effort and it certainly saves the patient the anxiety of having to because in my case they have to come back to the hospital where they were detained which they don't really want to go to it's not a very nice association for them and they'd really rather keep well away from it which i completely understand i mean the other radical change that i think uh, is is potentially uh, a goer i don't know if you've tried out the transcription functionality in teams james yeah, I have, yeah. but you know it's getting pretty damn good yeah. Uh, and I know Sigmund Freud used to tape record all his sessions. Imagine if we were freed from the burden of having to write it all up afterwards. Yeah. Radical, but I'm not sure if the world's ready for that. But no. you know. well, along the same lines, I mean, I was, I was floating. You know, my, a lot of my colleagues have been fretting about recording of sessions, which is an interesting one. You know, and and people have been saying, well, you must, you, know, you must tell them they can't record. And I did challenge back a bit and say, well. Why not? You know, wouldn't it be a good idea? Not so much. It's not going to be maybe not for you as the clinician, but for the patient to go back and listen to their encounter consultation again will probably be a really useful thing for them because everyone knows that patients, it's difficult to remember everything everyone said. I mean, everyone that's well known. And if you could just go back for 30 days and download a video of your consultation you've just had, that I, to me, that seems like it can only be a good thing. I think you're right. And the, the recording issues come up um, um, with us as well. Um, but I've always taught my jun juniors to assume they are being recorded because sometimes you are. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, people have got the functionality to record the consultation with the with their iPhone in their pocket, yeah. and you might as well assume you're being recorded. And in, like I say, you know, in days gone by, it was considered good practice. Yeah. I wonder where we lost lost that. It's true because I mean, I'm sitting. I do remember. Well, Rayside Clinic, the hospital I used to work with in Birmingham, it was built with a film studio as part of the design, as a couple with other because that at that stage, videoing and filming was seen as the future of medical education. Mm. And as you say, unfortunately, that got lost in in the mix along the way, and it's a shame because there's a lot of sense to be had in terms of learning, teaching, as well as not subjecting patients to sort of being repeatedly interviewed when you can display mm -hmm. what you need to. Um, and, and we have lost that. Um, and maybe maybe it's time to come back to that again. It sounds like there are quite a lot of benefits to going digital. Um, but on the other side, are there any constraints or any risks associated with using digital services that trusts and care providers need to address before they implement them? 
I think, um, I mean, the, the obvious one is, is about um, inclusion or stroke discrimination, you know, yeah. making sure that everyone, that no one's disadvantaged. And I suppose, again, from my point of view, the way you do that is you, you make it clear that this is a, that there's a, it's just a set of tools. It's rather than saying everyone must have a video consultation, you'd say this is available. And I think it's a bit of, there's been some worry in our place, perhaps, that the, the message, and it wasn't the message, but the message was felt to be, well, video first. And I don't think it is. It's um, so that, that's one aspect. And there is there is things that get complicated, like around people are saying, well, what if the patient's only got a limited amount of data on their phone, for example? You know, how do we handle that? You know, because we might have paid their bus fare in the past, perhaps. So are we going to give them some credit for their phone now? Those kind of, I think those are things we're going to need to find answers to. That's interesting, James. I, I agree with you. Inclusion and exclusion are key. And um, I think actually the NHS is pretty good at this sort of thing. We don't usually leave anybody behind. If you need it in Welsh, it's in Welsh. If you need it in Urdu, it's in Urdu. Uh, if you need a translator, we'll get one. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but we, I think we are a pretty inclusive organisation. I think some of the things that used to be a blocker here was, you know, which what Microsoft used to call Skype faff. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of that has has dropped out with the improvements in the in the software and, and 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 how things all seem to start working together now i know i've had to come onto a machine with a chrome browser to join in today so there's still some of that about but i in in large measure i, I you know i think a lot of people can get on um you have to ask the question in in a in a post-covid world where we're paying 80 percent of people's wages mm. should we not be paying their internet connection as well certainly for the disadvantaged and the other thing I suppose on that as well is again it's it's not forgetting that the traditional way of running services is by itself discriminatory and you know, or can be you know running an outpatient clinic you could say is quite it discriminates against people who can't mm. travel easily or live a long way from the hospital you know the, the, you can always there's, it certainly is not the case that the system that we had was perfect in every way it all these things have got challenges and you just have to understand them and make sure you've addressed them properly. So it basically sounds like, you know, digital is actually providing a little bit more inclusion. And from what you've said, it's mm. it's about working with the patient and using what works for them. And we all have phones, so it must be a lot easier for some people to just have a text or a video call rather than traveling into an appointment. Um, which brings me to the next subject. Unfortunately, we can't avoid coronavirus. Um, <laughs> it is still quite big news. Um, so obviously, mental health care has had to go digital while the outbreak continues. Um, all appointments that don't have to be done face to face are now being done using a range of technologies, whether that's texting or online consultation or chats. And that's been a really sizable shift across the whole of the NHS, not just in mental health care. So how has mental health care changed since the onset of COVID-19? And do you think that this will actually encourage more people to reach out and use mental health services? Well, uh, interesting. I, overall, we've seen demand go down, yeah. um, which uh, you might not you might not intuitively expect, but I think that's partly about getting access to us is traditionally through uh, referral by somebody else. So I suspect the fact that general practice has changed quite a lot might be something to do with that. Um, but I think. Uh, that won't last. Mm. I'm pretty sure there'll be an uptick uh, once people can get uh, referred in again. Yeah, we've seen and recently exactly the same. I mean, gen everything was down. In fact, we've you know we had the very you know, we had, for a period at least we had even the usage of the beds was reduced. Um, and there's two things. We're like I think like any other health service, we're going to see a kind of a surge in demand in when the people who should have been referred and treated routinely today are 
you know, likely to become maybe worse and present later, a bit later on. So I think we'll be bound to see mm-hmm. some of that. I mean, in terms of the practice, I mean, most of our teams, of, you know, all the, say, the community mental health teams have carried on, although they've, they've shifted their work mostly to being phone calls. Actually, that's still the biggest use. And I, I think we'll see, and I think that they are seeing benefits. So I think we'll see a shifting and hopefully a concentration of the more intense resource towards the patients who need it the most. Um, or at early stages, whereas the longer term review cases may be dealt with in a slightly less intense manner. Um, so I'd like to think that we'd be able to redistribute some of our resources around to meet the areas of greatest need better. And I think that will be one of the lasting legacies of this time. Yeah. I mean, was the, was the move to being more digital at this time as hard as you expected or was it just a case of we have to do this so it's happening? It was. I mean, it just shows, as always, that, you know, when people when there's a desire to do something, stuff can get done. You know, I mean, as you say, it doesn't matter whether even a big sort of organization you know, like the NHS as a whole or even our own trusts. You know, when people have a need and you can present with something, they'll grab hold of it and do it. Um, so I wasn't in that sense. I always it's like I always knew that people could do it. Yeah, it wasn't. I, yeah. I doubted their ability. or doubt, I didn't doubt any of it. It was just giving a reason. Um, so in that sense, I was pleased. Well, I was, I think I was very pleased that what we did stood up and worked. It would have been, you know, hard if we'd done stuff that hadn't worked. But on the whole, what we tried to do worked well, and I was very pleased about that. And I was very pleased at the way the staff were really willing to get stuck in uh, and get stuff done. And likewise, uh, James, we had a, it was very very similar. Suddenly there was a requirement. Uh, frankly, it was in the five-year IT strategy to deliver all of this change, but it just happened in a fortnight, yeah. um, you know, and like I say, at Sleep Station, it happened It happened 10 years ago because that's that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to produce a, you know, digital first, digital only, in fact, service, uh, and it's about desire. Um, and, of course, having a line in the budget that said COVID probably helped too. <laughs> it did. Although, it's, I mean, I must say, I mean, I, would, I think in general, like you say, we'd already prepped for most of this stuff. Um, yeah, but uh, but as I say, the mobilisation bit I think was definitely eased by that. Yeah, the reappearance of the magic money tree was extremely <laughs> timely. Yeah, but it coincided with the disappearance of webcams, headsets, and everything, laptops, and everything else <laughs> you need. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. That's been a bit of a struggle. But uh, to be fair, the uh, I think even, you know the sort of uh, the hardware suppliers have actually pitched in as well. They, yeah, you yeah. Know, they've all worked really, really hard. Uh, to, to get us what we need and to give them their journey in our case in the regional and the regional team nhs team was also very helpful and they did actually get again unblock supply chains and got stuff moving which was very helpful and, and nhsx as well to be honest the you know some you know sometimes the hand of the center can feel a bit deadening but it didn't feel like that in the in the emergency actually some of the stuff that we were asked not to do you know push back on mhsds and iap data field changes and yes. Some of the stuff that we could have got bogged down in, um, we mercifully released from. So I'm, I'm grateful for. Um, I think there might be a lesson for the sender here. You know, sometimes less is more mm. in terms of what you do in the middle. Yeah, I think a bit of enable. I mean, the enabling stuff we had, and it, and it also, the other thing it did, it did make some of the staff in our organisation find out what NHSX was. That was interesting as well because I had a few people from the front line say, "Well, NHSX's statement says X, Y, and Z," which is very interesting. Um, so it's opened their eyes at least to, yeah. to, to to what's happening up there. That is that is good. It's nice to know that the reaction within the sector has been as quick as we need it to be. But, uh, what about patient uptake? Has that um, has that gone the way you'd expected? Are people happy to be using digital services? 
Yeah, I yeah. mean, they, they they seem to be. I mean, obviously, they, we haven't they haven't got a lot of choice um, <laughs> uh, right now. Um, but that, like I say, they've just got better and better um, because they're using technologies that they're familiar with. So they've all they've all done a video call of, I imagine, I don't know, eighty percent of the uh, of the of the of the people have done one now, uh, and everybody's getting pretty good at it. Yeah, and we and we we obviously like everyone else. At some point, we'll do try and do some more formal evaluation on. But but what we know is that, say, we've got all these video calls happening, and for them to be happening, there must be somebody on the other end who's willing to do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be happening. So um, you know, the numbers on that you know are, are pretty clear. And again, if we're looking at our sort of appointment data, what we found again is that you know the majority of appointments are still happening. We haven't had to cancel very yeah. many. You know, they by one means or another and sometimes the occasional one people have still been seen face to face where that's most appropriate which, which is mm. fine um but as a, as a body of patients if you like they seem very much up for it i've been tracking the uh, the travel expenses numbers in my trust so in a normal month we pay out on six hundred and fifty thousand miles mm. at, at, uh, at 50 pence a mile more or less uh, and last month it was only two hundred thousand. So travel's gone down to thirty percent of what it previously was, mm. uh, and yet activity is more or less the same in terms yeah. of contact with patients. So something's happened. Yeah, and I suppose I mean we'll have to. I mean, no, in the long run, there'll be some no doubt some academic work eventually around patient or about patient outcomes. But it will be very interesting to see. You know, and who knows, maybe we might even find the outcomes for patients at this time are better than they would have been before. You know, I wouldn't wouldn't altogether surprise me because people are getting seen more easily than they were. And I bet you some appointments are happening that wouldn't have happened before. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's much easier to use a digital service, isn't it? Especially if you're, you know, busy, you've got your own life and traveling to a face to face appointment. Mm. It is, it's not something that everyone has the time to do. Um, so, I mean, me personally, I use apps for everything now to book GP appointments because I don't want to have to take time off to go and, and see someone. Um, so it is, it's much easier to use the digital services. Um, I also wanted to ask, and we have briefly touched on this, um, but obviously we're all, you know, we're all in lockdown and coping with the pandemic the best way we possibly can. Um but obviously, it's really trying times. Um, and I think there's, you know, quite a few people that are finding it very overwhelming. So how big of a problem do you think poor mental health is going to be when we emerge from the COVID-19 crisis? And is the NHS capable of coping with that demand? Yeah, Sorry, guys. That was a question. A and, and I mean, it's a question. Both reluctant to answer it. I think... My, my honest, what I actually think is, well, I think what we'll see, no doubt, is that the um, the sort of the so-called um, uh, in, improving access to psychological therapy services, which deal with the sort of mild to moderate anxiety, mild depression. So I think those services will, and they're already under great demand. Though that will that will that will continue. Um, we'll see again an effect of the you know the lag, the the, the period of services were, were not you know we're not able to see or referrals were not coming in coming in later. I don't I don't know really. I, I mean, there's. The, what, what, what you see out there, I mean, is that in general, society often copes quite well when things are hard. You know, we've seen a lot of examples of that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe that that sort of sense of sort of common purpose will, will, will be helpful. I don't know. Um, it's easy to say that everything's going to get worse. I'm not sure that it is. And we'll have to wait and see. I do think that our services, especially now with all this work we've done, are as well equipped as they can be to cope, certainly in terms of efficiency. And I reckon we can see more cases more easily with the same number of staff than we could as a result of this embracing of technology. So 
I'm as confident as we can be we can meet it but you know truthfully no one quite knows I, I think you're right, James. And, you know, we know from, from history that sometimes mental health problems seem to be less prevalent yeah. during, say, a war, yeah. when people are kind of looking out for each other. And and when it finishes, you get a bit of a rebound and all the people who were traumatised by the events yeah. of the war, etc. We might see all that coming down the line. We we probably will. But I think the big change for me in terms of what I've seen in 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 the new world, if you like, at Sleep Station is that you can automate quite a lot uh, of a therapeutic process um, uh, and be able to deliver at a scale yeah. uh, with a relatively small number of staff. So there's there's only 30 of us at Sleep Station, but, you know, we're dealing with 36,000-odd patients uh, in a given year uh, and in 30 countries. Yeah. Uh, that's because we have, you know, we've done a, we've done a lot uh, in terms of, self-service uh, and you you get you get a human when you need a human yeah. uh, and I, I honestly think uh, there's a, there's a lot uh, to come in in mental health services I think we're uniquely placed to be able to deliver uh, online uh, it, because we don't have to take your appendix out if we can see your face uh, and hear your voice uh, probably enough most of the time and you could probably get your blood pressure taken at boots yeah. um, if needs be so uh, I, I think that there's huge potential for change yeah yeah so lastly I wanted to ask you guys what would your advice be to trusts and care providers that are looking to go digital in their mental health care um, I think I would I would say be bold actually especially at the moment you know try and think Try and re- I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but try and reimagine what you're doing. Don't just think about digitizing you know, a digital version of the same thing. If you can, it's easier than done. Think about the whole thing. How can we deliver? Here's our service. And what's the best way of delivering it with all the technology we've got? Rather than just saying, you know, let's do a digital outpatient clinic. Let's say, well, let's do a digital delivery of treatment. So that would be my advice. Now, there's never going to be a better time than now to really think radically about what to do. Because, of course, what will happen is as this recedes, we will, if we're not careful, find ourselves slipping back into old ways. And uh, and now's the time to really get the stuff done whilst the um, window is open. So that'd be my advice. And mine, mine would be similar. Don't go back. You know, uh, there there are real opportunities here. And some people who've, who've already done it actually made those massive changes. Um, so, um, I you know, I, I'd love to think this was a great leap forward. And, and I'd hate to think that we will just you know, go back to running phlegmy old waiting rooms and outpatient clinics yeah. for the sake of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Joe and James, thank you so much for joining me on Digital Health Unplugged. It's been a pleasure having you on. And to all of our listeners at home, thanks again for tuning in. As always, we publish fortnightly and we're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes and the usual podcast platforms. Stay safe, everyone, and we will catch you next time. Bye.